Hi, Cold Springs Church. So glad that you've joined us today at this time to worship God and to grow and to learn through God's Word. Would you just stop and pause with me and pray as we ask God's Spirit to be with us, uh, to teach us, to guide us um, as we open up God's Word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who knows us that you are the God who is personal, the God who is accessible. You are the God who is near. And Heavenly Father, I pray for uh, each of us in our time and in our place where we are hearing this, where we are encountering you through worship, through your word. Father, that you would help us to see what we need to see that you would give us ears that would be open to hear what it is that you are speaking to us. Help us, Jesus, to experience you today in this moment, in this time, in a more deep, in a more intimate, more personal way, to hear your voice. And in hearing your voice and encountering you, of experiencing you, Lord, that you would lead us into uh, life. Let your word do its work of bringing life and light into our lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Have you ever thought about what is the most effective and efficient way to communicate? Now, You probably maybe need to think about or you probably have thought about this in different contexts. But in general, if you think about the most effective and efficient way of communicating something you want somebody else to know, it is to tell them, right? It is that you would just just flat out, just straight out, just tell them what they need to know and then, you know, you use the amount of words that are necessary, you get the message across, the person receives it, and then they can do what you want them to do. Um, Does that sound familiar at all uh, for how you maybe view or have engaged with some conversations? And it's, it's a very pragmatic, it's a very efficient way of conversations. But when we, when we just tell somebody what to do, then we have to ask that, this question is, does it really, does it really work? Uh, you know, telling other people what we think and what we want or what they should do, communicating in that way by telling others feels good oftentimes, but I'm not sure it's all that effective. Um, telling rarely works because there's a, a, some particular reasons why. One is is that telling, um, when we tell somebody to do something, the person that we're telling doesn't take any ownership in it because it's our idea, it's our way, it's our thoughts, and we're just you know telling them what they need, what we believe that they need to know. So they don't have any ownership in it. And then because they don't have any ownership in it, they don't take any responsibility. So if I tell somebody to do something in a certain way at a certain time, and they go ahead and do that, and it fails, then whose fault is it? It's my fault. It's 
not their fault. I did what you told me to do. It didn't work. I don't know, maybe you've had one of those conversations. Um, and here's the other thing. Bottom line is, is that people resist being told to do anything. People resist, you know, somebody, what they view is getting in their face and telling them. Now, you know, uh, here's a, an example in marriage. So let's say that uh, husband's driving and wife is instructing husband in how to drive and where to go, how fast to go, when to turn, when not to turn, what to watch out for. You know, there's a lot of telling that's going on there. Oftentimes, that doesn't go very well. Or if you think about, you know, parenting. Um, I, I remember, you know, I've taught, you know, my kids about how to mow the lawn. And I have this saying that my kids will tell you about. It's like, and I say, it's like wiping the table. Because the most efficient way to wipe the table is just sort of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so you don't miss any spots. Not, it's not like, shoo, 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 shoo. You know, and then, you know, you miss these massive places. In the same way, mowing the lawn is like, you know, you do it in this orderly, logical way. But um, pretty much all of my kids have figured out, you know, that, you know, they can do it their own way. And I guess, you know, ultimately, if all the grass is mowed, then they can do it their own way. But they don't like being told, right? Or in leadership, if you've ever been in a position of leadership where you've wanted somebody to accomplish a certain task, if you tell them what and when and how, and um, and so it all becomes your idea versus their idea, becomes all your way versus their way. It all becomes how you would do it versus um, tapping into their creativity and their view and their vision and, and their life. Then there's ultimately tension that happens. In all of those examples, there's tension that happens. And, and here's the reason, is, is that there's a problem with people. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. There's a problem with people. Okay, and here's one of the problems with people, is, is that if you haven't noticed, people are messy. I'm not talking about physically messy. I mean, some people are physically messy, but people are messy. I mean, they can be, you know, there's all kinds of, of unpredictability in, in, in how people might respond or react. There's things that we don't know about them. So people are, are just generally messy. And then the other thing is, is that people are sinful. I mean, this is the Bible's term for us, right? This is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have this sense of rebellion within us, and we rebel against God. We rebel against other people. We we, we chafe at being told um, to do things. Uh, and, and so there's this brokenness that every one of us has. And, and I already said that people are unpredictable in how they can respond. And people are very human. And that humanness sort of is defined as the, this, um, this brokenness and this challenge and the messiness of, of people. And, and people don't appreciate being anyone's project. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, whether it's a, a wife or a husband or a child, is, is that if there's a sense that that you're, you know, if you have the sense that you're somebody's project, then we all resist that, right? We don't want to be anybody's project. We're a person. Um, and then people are fearfully and wonderfully made. We talked about this. We did this series um, on the Enneagram. The, you know, ultimately the Enneagram is, is, is a tool to help us understand personality. And we framed it in this idea where the 
the psalmist writes about us being fearfully and wonderfully made. And that we're made in the image of God, but that made in the image of God isn't that everybody's a cookie cutter the same as everybody else. In fact, we're very different. People um, are unique in how we express ourselves. And so that's, that can be part of the problem with people, right? And so, so when we come at it with these, this idea of, of being effective and, and following these principles and being pragmatic in how we're going to converse, then we come up against the problem with people. Now, one of the things that, that I do is, is that I am a coach. I'm a, a professionally certified coach with the International Coach Federation. I teach coaching. Uh, I do coaching, worked with leaders in, in coaching, over 2,000 hours of coaching conversations with leaders um, through the years. And I love having you know, coaching conversations. But the he- thing about coaching is, is that it's an intentional conversation and that there's a coaching mindset and a coaching skill set that is required. And and the bottom line about coaching is in a lot of ways it can be seen as inefficient but effective conversations. It's inefficient because it's not about telling somebody. There's a mindset that you have to have of curiosity about that person and about their journey and about the way that they're thinking and their experience and sort of sitting and, and resting in that curiosity. There's the, the coaching mindset of presence, of being with them, of walking with them, of listening to them and to their process and the way that they work through things. And the other thing is, is that the coaching mindset is very other-centered. It's the belief in that other person that God has placed within them this unique, beautiful character and that there's a lot of resources in that person and the coach is there to draw those out. And then the skill set is, is that um, to listen really well. Is, is that the majority of a coaching conversation is about listening to what they have to say and then questioning really well, of asking questions that are going to help them to look beyond the surface into the deeper parts of themselves or the deeper parts of the issue or the opportunity that they're facing. And then the other thing about that skill set is to speak well, is to be careful and to be wise and judicious with the words that you use because you're there to serve the other person, to help them to have this new awareness and this new understanding. And all of that takes time. All of that takes intentionality. And, but the, there's a tremendous power within that when somebody gets a new awareness, gets a new insight, when they de- design a way and come to an understanding of how they can accomplish something, there's a beauty within that it's inefficient because, you know, you just want to tell them, do this, think this. But it's highly effective because it's their journey. It's their understanding. It's their insight. It's their actions. People are messy. And as we work with them and as we talk with them, then it's not all about being the most effective and being the most efficient it's about being with. Now, this is what we've been in a series on of over the last few weeks, is looking at this book that Sky Jasani wrote called 
with. And we've been looking at what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to live a life where we are with God. And and we've been looking at these different um, perspectives, these different postures, as Jathani calls them, that we have tend to have towards our relationship with God. And last week, uh, Pastor Nick talked about life under God. And sort of the illustration is this triangle, and the triangle represents the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. And that triangle was sitting on top of a stick person. And life under God seeks to control, um, seeks control of the world through religion and by manipulating God through ritual or morality. And it, it's sort of, so it's, it's following a religion or being a good person, following the rules that God has established and these rituals that God has established. So in essence, God will owe us. God, we can control God. Um, by being good, and by being good according to the religion or the, the morality that we've identified. That's life under God. Today, we're going to be looking at this idea of life over God, a different posture. And the life over God dismisses the, the life under God as irrational superstition. Right? That all of this religious talk and all of these rituals and all of these rules, that it's just irrational things that are going on there. And we seek control. If we live a life over God, you seek control by discovering how the world works and then directly implementing the right principles to get the right results. And so it's this 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 journey of saying, okay, how does, how does life work? And then I understand how life works. Here are the principles to make life work in order for me to get the outcomes that I want to get. So I just need to get the right principles in order to get the right outcomes. Now, there's lots of easy targets of, that we can look at of this dismissing, um, you know, God as as being you know religious religion as being superstitious and and one of the most obvious is atheism and in atheism atheism is the opposite of theism it is that there is no God so atheists say you know there there is no superpower being out there there's no God there's there's no anything other than what we have. And so all, all that we can live under are the laws of science, the laws of physics, the laws of, of reality that, that we have here. We can't depend upon any supernatural being or supernatural power. That doesn't exist. Atheism. Another very popular one within the world today is um, agnostic or um, ag or a Gnostic. Gnostic means knowing. And, and the idea behind an agnostic is, is that, well, I don't know. I don't know and I can't know whether there is a supernatural power out there, whether there is a God of, of some sort. And so essentially they just live as atheists, you know, that, that God doesn't exist, that God doesn't, um, isn't a part of my reality. And, and, and then, you know, socialism is, is one of the, the reflections of some of these ideas. It's not 
um, always go that direction, but socialism is that you know, to the, the collective, together, we're going to make everything work through our relationships with one another. And, and so those are some easy targets of this life over God, that we are the ones who are ultimately in control. We are the ones that, um, that God really doesn't matter, that God uh, doesn't exist or doesn't play a part in what is going on. Now, I, I want to look, at, though, closer to home of how does this idea, this posture of life over God show up in the church? How does it show up in our expression of Christian faith. And it shows up in the church, it shows up in the Christian faith by um, an, an idea called deism. And deism is a, a belief in God, but it's ultimately sort of like an, almost a, an, a, an agnostic idea or atheistic idea because it believes that God, yeah, exists, but God isn't involved. God isn't engaged in the world today. And in the, the way that the people describe this view is, is that God is a clockmaker, right? And he made this clock called the universe. And he took the clock and he's wound the clock up. And now the clock is running. God set the clock down. And, and, and he doesn't have anything to do with it. Is that God is disinterested, that, that God is distant, that God is not engaged in anything in our lives because he's created everything, but he is this distant God. That's deism. And, and within this um, idea of deism, which really comes out of the, the Enlightenment, um, which has shaped a lot of our culture within an American culture, an American understanding of life and of faith, is, is that it's all about understanding science. It's all about understanding the principles. It's all about understanding the way that, that um, life works. And then as we get those principles figured out, then we live those principles in order to get the results that we are looking for or that we are wanting. And... Um, and these principles for effectiveness are the most important thing. And that everything what we're trying to do is we're trying to find those principles that can make us most effective. In the book with, uh, Scott Jathani gives the example of a, an, an interview that Leadership Journal did with a very famous and, and very influential pastor. Um, and this was back in the, in the um, uh, mid uh, 2010 or somewhere in there. And, and he did this interview with this pastor who had, was very effective in you know, growing a large church. And one of the questions was this, is what, what is distinctively spiritual about the kind of leadership that you do? And the response of the pastor was this, there's nothing distinctly spiritual. One of the criticisms I, I get is your church is so corporate. And I say, okay, you're right. Now, why is that a bad model? A principle is a principle, and God created all the principles. 
So within the church, within this, this sort of um, model of leadership, this corporate model of leadership within the structure of the church, it's like, well, the church is just like any other organization. And so what we need to do is we need to find the organizational principles that are most effective for this organization to grow and to accomplish its mission. And because God has made all principles, then that has some sort of element of spirituality. All truth is God's truth. And so, therefore, it's not necessarily a spiritual enterprise. It is a principle enterprise. It is a principle thing that we are doing. I remember uh, when uh, early on when I came here uh, to Cold Springs Church uh, um, a couple of decades ago, that we did a, uh, there was a very popular parenting curriculum out there called Growing Kids God's Way. So even, you know, you look at the title, Growing Kids God's Way. So as long as you're following this curriculum, then you're growing kids God's way. And it was actually a very divisive <laughs> within some of the larger circles uh, because of those who resisted that and those who, who totally embraced it. And oftentimes, a lot of people who embraced this curriculum looked at people who didn't do the curriculum or didn't do things God's way as being lesser. And, but at the, this, the, the basis of it was is that here are these principles growing kids God's way. And if you follow these principles, then the outcome, you're going to produce this product. And the product is children who will know God and follow God in their life. John Maxwell is um, one of the most well-known within the Christian leadership circles, and he was one of the um, only voices early on within Christian leadership writing. And John Maxwell <laughs> has written a lot of books. And, and so here's some of his titles. The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. The 15 Invaluable Laws of Growth the 21 indispensable qualities of a leader, the 17 indisputable laws of teamwork. You sort of get the theme going on there. I love those words, irrefutable, invaluable, indispensable, indisputable. So, so here's the thing is, is that what they're saying is, is that here, he's saying is that you've got these principles. If you follow these principles because they're irrefutable, they're, indis they're indisputable, they're indispensable, they're invaluable. You can't argue against them, can you? And that they're going to produce, they're going to produce leadership, they're going to produce growth, they're going to produce the qualities of leader, they're, they're going to produce teamwork because the, these are the principles. And those principles are tied to biblical concepts that he would write upon. Now, I'm not saying that John Maxwell is a bad guy. I'm not saying that growing kids God's way doesn't have valuable insight and wisdom um, in, in part of their lessons. But it all goes to this idea that we have is, is that if we can just read the Bible and find the principles about how to be effective and apply those principles, then we will get what we want. And here's the problem. The Bible is not a book of principles for success. The Bible is a story of relationship. 
The Bible is a story of the relationship of God and his people. The Bible is a story from page one to the last page of God engaging in relationship in pursuit of love towards his creation. Now, are there principles? Are there, are there, uh, is there wisdom? Absolutely. I mean, there's wisdom lit- literature in the Bible that talks about the ways that we should view life, the ways that we should live life, the, the, the pathways that lead to blessing in our life. And that can be part of the tension as we go through this series and we look at some of these postures. We can see some of these ideas and these concepts that are found there in Scripture. You go, well, look at this. What, what is, what is, what's this all about? But we have to remember that at the very basis, the Bible is about relationship. Now, I want us to look at a, a, a passage of Scripture. I want us to look at a story found in the Old Testament that can give us a little bit of an example of this. And it's a story about Moses and his staff. Now, if you've read the, the story of Moses in the book of um, um, Exodus, Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the, the first part of the, the Bible, the very beginning, we see that, that Moses um, was, uh, in, it, he was an Israelite and he was taken into Pharaoh's home because um, the Egyptians were trying to kill all of the, um, all the Israelites. And so Moses was, was rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh, raised in Pharaoh's home. And then, you know, there was this incident where he um, understood who he was and he tried to stand up for justice um, for his people who were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and he ended up killing uh, somebody and then he ran and hid. And he ended up in the desert. And in the middle of the desert, after 20 years or so, 40 years, he, um, he was called by God to lead the people of Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt. And so part of Moses' story is, is that he would go and he would encounter and he would confront Pharaoh uh, and Aaron um, would go with him. And one of the props that God used regularly was his staff. Remember, he was a shepherd. He was a sh- um, sheep shepherd out in, in the desert. And that one of the tools of the trade was a, was a long stick. And this long stick is what Moses would take. And, and so God used something that was very ordinary to bring about his purposes. And, and so one of the, the, the stories when he went to Pharaoh was is that he had a staff, he threw it down on the ground, it turned into a snake as an evidence of God's power. And then the magicians were able to do the same thing. And then uh, another one was that he struck the Nile um, with his staff and it turned to blood. And that's found in Exodus chapter 7. And then there's another story in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, where Moses has led the people of Israel out. They're in the desert. They're, they're thirsty. They're surly. They're complaining against Moses and against God because they, they don't have any water. And so what Moses does is that he strikes the rock, um, According to God's instructions, he strikes a rock and water flows out of that rock 
and all the people have water. And then another in Exodus 17, as an evidence of, of God's power, that uh, the, the staff of Moses, it budded with uh, blossoms and almonds and flowers uh, and as an evidence of, of the presence and the power of God to all the people who were whining and complaining. But then there's another story in Numbers chapter 20. And the people of Israel find themselves in a similar place. And, and let me read to you in, in, in Numbers chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. In the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin and camped at Kadesh, where they were there. While they were there, Miriam died and was buried. Verse 2 There was no water for the people to drink at that place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. The people blamed Moses and said, If only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers, why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into this wilderness to die, along with all our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water to drink. Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and went to the entrance of the tabernacle, where they fell face down on the ground. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord said to Moses, You and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community as the people watch. Speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. Verse 9. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where he was, it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff, and water gushed out so the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. Do you see what the problem is? Do you remember what God said to do and what Moses did? God said, speak to the rock. What did Moses do? He struck the rock. Moses did the thing that he'd done before, not the thing that God had instructed him to do. Verse 12, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I am giving them. This place was known as the waters of Meribah, which means arguing, because there the people of Israel argued with the Lord, and there he demonstrated his holiness among them. Now, I think that this is a, this is a, a challenging story because it's like, wow, that's a, that's a really heavy response by God. But here's Moses' sin. Moses shows principles over obedience. And it's this idea of what God did, God does, and God will do. And God had used Moses' staff. And he told Moses to bring his staff with him. And yet, it wasn't the staff. It was his words that he was to use. And because he didn't obey God, because Moses depended upon the past, what he saw as a principle, and not on the obedience to God, he was judged. And, and what we see in Moses is what we see in our lives today. It's if this, then that spirituality. If this, then that. It's a, it's a, it's a programmer language that um, you can 
put apps on your phone or in, in your iPad that if you get an, an email from this person, then it's going to go into this um, inbox. If this, then that. Life over God believes that you just have to figure out the right principles to get the desired results. If I do this, then God has to do that. And life over God puts us in control. Because I know the principles. And if I follow the principles, then I'm in control. But the problem is, is, is that it puts also a tremendous amount of fear into our life. Because it increases the burden upon us that we have to do the right thing in order for the right thing to happen, to come about. We have to follow the principles. We have to understand. We have to know the principles and follow them. And it ultimately is all up to us. Now here's the question. Here's the question for us in our life personally. Here's the question for us at Cold Springs Church. Is there anything in your life that cannot be understood or explained apart from the presence of God? Or is your spirituality, is your practice of your faith simply about following the principles in order to get the outcome? It's all about you. It's not about God. Is there anything in our church that can only be explained by the presence of God? If God's spirit didn't show up, would anyone notice? Our tendency is to, is to look at our, this life over God, is to live in that way, is to find the principles and to live out the, those principles. But here, I talked about the problem with people. You know, people are messy and they're, um, you know, they're sinful and unpredictable and human and, and appreciate, they don't appreciate being anyone's project and, and they're fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, there's a problem with God too. And the problem with God is this, is that God is infinite God will not fit in your box. He will not fit in your 10 easy steps to whatever. God is infinitely personal. And God is infinitely knowable. And being with God, following God, is about putting our trust not in God's principles, but in God himself. That's the tension. That's the challenge. It's not to see the, the, the Bible as this instruction manual for how to be blessed by God, but it is to see the Holy Scriptures as the way that we can know the infinite God, the infinitely personal, the infinitely knowable God. You know, I think that some people, when they talk about heaven, you know, that they think, okay, when I get to heaven, um, there's going to be like this instant download. You know, I'm going to know everything instantly. All the questions that I've always had. You know what? I think it's going to be an eternity of new awareness. So let's go back to Moses' staff, just just real quick. It, one of the things. Uh, 
I wonder, did you notice that when Moses struck the rock twice, that the water came out of the rock? Did you notice that, that even though Moses didn't do what he was supposed to do, God was still faithful and he brought water from the rock? God didn't intervene and go, hey, hold on. <laughs> Whoa, hey, hold on. Moses, Moses. I said to speak to the rock, not hit the rock. No, God came through. God was faithful. So the people were happy. Moses was effective. But Moses wasn't faithful. And that was what Moses was judged for. Not his effectiveness. He's very effective. He, 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 he brought water out of the rock. The livestock were, were watered. The people had water. They were happy. God is more concerned with your faithfulness than your effectiveness. God is more concerned with your faithfulness and your effectiveness because only in faithfulness is there room for grace. Only in faithfulness is there room for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus. And that's what we're invited to live in. Created to be with. That's what we were created for. That was God's intention from Genesis right at the beginning. To be with him in relationship with him. And Jesus came to be with us so that we could be with God. We, we don't manipulate God. We're not over God. It's not about the principles of God. It's about the infinite, the infinitely knowable, the infinitely personal God and our encounter with him. You're invited to um, be prepared for communion as we end our message today. And communion is this <laughs> this this expression of, of God with us. You know, I was looking at the, at the gospel of, of Luke and Luke's story of this in verse 15 of Luke 22, where Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I have... And I was just struck by that. I've been, I was very eager. Jesus was eager to be with his disciples, to be in community. Jesus is eager to meet you in these elements. And it says that, that Jesus took a um, cup of wine at the beginning of the meal and he said, take this and drink it. And share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again. And then he took some bread. I encourage you to take that piece of bread that, that you have. And he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat the body of Jesus. And after supper, he took another cup of, of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood 
between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Let's take and drink, representing Jesus' blood, a new covenant of love towards us. Jesus, thank you that you are faithful. And your word reminds us that even when we are faithless, your faithfulness is enduring. So we receive the gift of your faithfulness and your goodness. We receive your presence towards us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be with you as you are with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.